0: Good evening. You're listening to KUCI at 88.9 FM in Irvine and online at KUCI.org. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd, I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard, Your Identity, and From Victim to Victor, a step-by-step guide for ending the nightmare of identity theft. She sits on the advisory board of the State of California Office of Privacy Protection, and she's a sheriff reserve here in Orange County. She's testified many times in Congress and the California legislature on privacy and identity theft issues. And you may have seen her on TV, on 48-Hour CNN, NBC, Dateline, ABC, O'Reilly, Oraldo, Montel, and lots of other shows, including her own 90-minute PBS television special a couple of years ago called Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. So to learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacy privacy. Evening, Murray. Good evening. Uh, who's your guest tonight?
1: Well, you have heard me speak about Joanna Crane, I think, many times. Yes, I, I have. think she is just wonderful. I met her probably almost 10 years ago in Washington, D.C. She is the ID theft program manager for the Federal Trade Commission. She is not only a great attorney, a wonderful person, a dedicated person. Employee for the Federal Trade Commission, but she really knows her stuff. A very professional lady, and I'm going to tell you a little bit of background about her. Joanna Crane is the Identity Theft Program Manager at the Federal Trade Commission, and she's responsible for coordinating the FTC's implementation of its responsibilities under the Identity Theft and Assumption Deterrence Act of 1998, which I was there to testify about that particular statute. And the FTC's program focuses on assisting victims of identity theft, supporting law enforcement investigations and training, outreach to private industry, developing regulatory and policy responses, and bringing civil enforcement actions against entities that fail to comply with data security laws. Joanna Crane Helps coordinate a variety of governmental councils and workshops, public private partnerships, and training and research initiatives involved with identity theft. She is the identity theft guru, and we are so thrilled that she's joining us all the way from the East Coast. She's terrific. So, Joanna, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for inviting me on your show, Mari. Well, you are so great. You know I think you're wonderful. You and Betsy Broder do such a great job for consumers and victims, and we are so grateful for you. Well, you are the best of the best, and as you said, we, you were there to
2: get the whole thing rolling back in 1998, and thank goodness you were because you had a great impact.
1: Well, thank you so much. Now, tell me, how is it that you ended up at the Federal Trade Commission?
2: Well, I had an interest in consumer rights, generally. And so I started working at the Federal Trade Commission in their budget department and moved over towards the program areas. The first big area I worked in was tobacco monitoring, monitoring the advertising, monitoring the labeling of the cigarette packs and that sort of thing. But eventually I decided I wanted to go to law school And while I was there, privacy was sort of emerging as a new legal area. That was in the sort of early 90s. So I took a special interest in that. And when I came back to the FTC as an attorney, after having been there to prosecute some uh, sort of business scams and sort of, uh, you know, more generic type of fraud, we got the responsibilities under the ID Theft Act, at which time I moved over and got involved with identity theft.
1: Well, thank goodness you have and you've been wearing a white hat for a long time <laughs> like crusader rabbit are you old are you young enough or old enough to remember crusader rabbit on tv when i was a kid remember that they do always doing good crusader rabbit that's the kind of role model that i grew up with mighty mouse too <laughs> that's right that's right i see you as crusader rabbit no we're really thrilled now what has happened recently is that you have a brand new survey that has been released the 2006 ID theft survey that actually took place in 2005 tell us a little bit how that survey came about and what the FTC has been doing to try and look at trends sure when the Federal Trade Commission got its responsibilities under the
2: ID theft act in 1998 one thing Congress told us to do was log in the complaints that we received from victims or consumers about identity theft and refer those complaints out to law enforcement and uh... to other entities like credit reporting agencies so we ended up developing an enormous database of consumer complaints we get about two hundred and fifty thousand or more a year and congress started to ask us for to look at patterns and trends in that data and so we did we were sending them little you know ad hoc reports um, telling them what kinds of identity theft victims were complaining to us about, in other words, what the thief was doing with their IDs, um, what types of fraud the thief was committing. And we started to wonder whether our data really reflected what was happening nationwide. Uh, we didn't really have a sense at all of whether the victims who called us were a good representation of a typical victim or not, and... Um, and there were also a few studies done very early on by Calperg and other organizations that tracked the that obtained information about the sort of how to measure the harm that victims experienced and that's what we relied on as well but the other thing that was really bugging us was that the only um, estimates we had on the extent of identity theft really were provided by the credit reporting industry who said that it was you know was not a million it was less than a million they were thinking it was seven hundred fifty thousand new victims a year so all of these unanswered questions and all of the data that we and other people were generating out of sort of small surveys or you know that business was was providing um, it it was unsettling so back in two thousand and three we decided to do a nationwide survey to really try and find out what the average victim was experiencing how pervasive identity theft was among the population um... just that type of information and we were totally shocked with the results i must say that when we went into it we thought that maybe up to one percent of the adult population would have been victims maybe up to one percent and our survey in 2003 showed that 4.6 percent of the adult population were identity theft victims, and and, and, and that was just,
1: about 10 million people, right? That was almost 10 right. million. Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. So, so it's it's been very useful to sort of help us understand
2: better the scope, the impact, um, and help Congress and and law enforcement. Um, direct their resources, more resources, to the problem of identity theft.
1: Right. So then in, in following that trend after the 2003 f- survey, which was fascinating and really provided at least some insight into the trends, then you, d- you did another one that followed up, which is the one that was just recently released. Yes. The one we recently released was conducted between sort of the end of March
2: and the middle of June in 2006. And we would do a complete interview with anyone who had discovered they were a victim since 2001. Now, to get our annual figures, because everyone likes to know how many new cases per year, etc., we focused in on 2005, because it was an entire year, and we wanted to use a calendar year instead of sort of an irregular 12-month period. Um, But you're right, it was back in, um, in 2006 when the survey was conducted, and they reached a total of
1: 4917 interviewees. And so they also set up categories and tell us about the categories that they had so that they could clarify the differences and comparisons.
2: Right. Um, what we found in the first survey and this survey confirmed it is that within this, you know, 8.3 million adults who have ex- who discovered they were victims in 2005, the the actual experiences of victims' report vary widely, extremely widely. And so there isn't really a typical average identity theft victim. You really need to look at it uh, in, in more fine detail. And the way it seems to cluster or break out correlates with the type of fraud that the thief committed using the victim's identity. That seems to be the driver, the thing that's going to cause the various harms and impacts that the victim will experience. So we have categorized them in three broad categories, and a victim is counted once, even if they report in more than one of these three broad categories. They're only counted once, because we didn't want to double count people and inflate the numbers.
1: So, so tell us about which categories are which.
2: Sure. Um, the least serious category are those folks who have had their existing credit card accounts misused, but no other type of identity theft, none of their other existing accounts, and no apparent misuse of their Social Security numbers um, or anything like that. That is a large group, um, which is why we have uh, really high numbers, but it is not a group that experiences you know, the most serious types of um, harm. The second group are and the... And let's go
1: back on that for just a second sure. and, and explain that that... You know, I always tell people the safest thing to use during the holiday season, which is right now, right? Yeah. That the safest thing to use is your credit card. And that's because if if there is any fraud on your credit card you can easily call up your credit card company when you get your bill and dispute it and you're never going to be responsible for the fraud and you may have to complete an affidavit but basically you're not going to be responsible for the fraudulent charges so that is the safest thing the fair credit billing act and also the policies of the of all the credit uh, card companies are going to protect you right you're exactly right i mean there is a very strong pro-consumer set of laws
2: and regulatory uh, rules and watchdog agencies, including the Federal Trade Commission, that really can watch this area and can really bring enforcement actions if the intent of Congress, which was to protect consumers when using their credit cards, um, is not uh, you know, whether there's bad compliance. So you're absolutely right. The other nice thing about credit cards, and especially now with online monitoring, is that you can find out from day to day whether the charges that appear on your bill are ones that you Uh, know about and are responsible for. Even if you don't do it online, but just look at your monthly statement, you'll know in an instant when you look at that statement whether there's been identity theft, and it's going to come every 30
1: days. Right, and you have up to 60 days to dispute it, and meanwhile, nothing gets siphoned out of your account until you pay that bill. So if you're a, a savvy consumer or just a regular person that knows how to read, you'll read your bill and make sure that you recognize everything on there and if you don't you can always call the company or call the credit card company and say wait a minute i don't i don't recognize this and and you can at least see if it's something that really is a true purchase that you made or not that, that's what i do so that's you're right it's the least worrisome it's the least hassle and that's that's the easiest um to to take care of right there's no time to fix that up that's right. In fact, among
2: consumers who were sort of talking to who responded to our questions about how long it takes to recover, um, many said that it only took one day. And of course, the vast majority of the people who said it only took one day were victims who um, only had their existing credit cards misused. Right. 37% of victims who only had their credit cards misused um, reported that they had uh, resolved it in one day
1: right and I think that's really important so people who are shopping now in the holiday season can know that that that's pretty safe use your credit cards but it's different with debit cards isn't it Joanna let's talk about that because I think people think that they're still protect they're protected in the same way and it's not a big deal if they use a debit card you're exactly right. I have a
2: feeling there's a big, a growing misunderstanding about debit cards because you no longer have to use a pin with them, and people think that they're sort of like credit cards, and sometimes the monitor at the point of sales terminal will even say credit when you have to sign uh, for a purchase using your debit card, but that money is coming right out of your bank account, and there are no... Fair Credit Reporting Act protections or Fair Credit Billing Act protections associated with your checking account. That is under state law, and state law puts it in the category of, you know, who was, you know, was there negligence on the part of the consumer? They'll, they'll look at sort of both sides of the story to see whether in any way you were responsible for Allowing your debit card to get into someone else's hands.
1: And it's also the Electronic Funds Transfer Act, isn't it? Doesn't that yeah. cover that as well? And that also, even though you might get something from your bank that says total quality protection, I'm sure you heard this a million times, Joanna, just like I have. People will say, you know, I use my debit somebody used my debit card number and I don't even know how they did it. They did it online and all this money was immediately siphoned out of my account. And I told the bank and I told them within 60 days, but now they, they took the money out of my, a different account and, and they're not giving me back my money. And right. so it's not the same kind of protection that a, that a regular credit card is. It isn't. And, and the Electronic Fund Transfer Act, which the
2: Federal Trade Commission also does enforce, only pertains to credit to debit cards when they're used with a PIN. And right now, the industry is trying to push people away from pins towards credit cards, excuse me, debit cards that are just um, approved either with no pin at all or with a signature. Right, Um, And so those, you don't even have the protections of the Electronic Fund Transfer Act, and that's where you're under the Uniform Commercial Code, which can really vary state by state and and is not nearly as clear-cut in how to resolve these disputes. But as you said, even under the Electronic Fund Transfer Act, consumers can lose the entire amount that was withdrawn if they don't notify the bank in what would be considered a timely manner, so right. you really have to be on guard with those.
1: Right. And so, let me ask you something. You know, so many people don't realize when they when they use their debit card um, that it can be used without a pin. And and I'm just wondering if the Federal Trade Commission has thought of that in itself as a deceptive practice or an unfair practice. Has that ever been discussed among the the people <laughs> about identity theft in the fair trade, feder, uh, the Federal Trade Commission with regard to fairness? I don't, you know, I can't really answer that question because I'm not right in the middle
2: of all of those policy discussions, but I do know that we coordinate very closely with the banking regulatory agencies who would oversee specific banks, and if there were particular banks who were giving consumers a really hard time on these debit cards, then th- those agencies, since we're talking about cases where the Electronic Fund Transfer Act, wouldn't be involved, um, those agencies would be responsible. So it's a great idea. It's a great topic for conversation, but I can't honestly say that I know of any conversations about that that have um, occurred so far, except the general acknowledgement that consumers seem to feel that they're more protected with debit cards than, in fact, they may actually be. Right.
1: I think they get confused. They think many, many people, I mean, even attorneys that I've spoken to when I've done programs, they seem to think that they're protected by the same laws, and I think that's the confusion among consumers. Yeah. Now, in, when you had the survey, did you find a big difference between the, the people who were victims of debit card fraud than credit card fraud?
2: Well, what we did find
1: is that they experienced
2: greater harm, uh, and they experienced more of the more difficult-to-measure types of harm than folks who only had credit card fraud. So, for instance, with respect to uh, dollar amounts, I guess that's a pretty easy one to do comparisons on. Um, If you were a victim um, of existing credit card fraud, The median amount that the thief may have gotten using your information was actually zero. However, if you were a victim of existing Non-credit card accounts, let's say debit card fraud, we didn't break it out as just debit cards. We also included if they had another type of account, such as a telephone account or a utility account. We sort of lumped those in the same category so it's not an exactly clean. Right. Um, but, the, for instance, the, 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 the top 5% in the non-credit card accounts, had out-of-pocket expenses as high as twelve hundred dollars whereas the credit card only victims reported um, out-of-pocket expenses of only four hundred dollars so it's what three times higher for existing non-credit card accounts than it is for existing credit card accounts um so there is a striking difference
1: right we're talking with joanna crane who is an attorney With the Federal Trade Commission, she is the Identity Theft Program Manager there in Washington, D.C., and she is talking to us about the 2006 survey, and I have known Joanna for years and known her dedication to consumers and doing the right thing and wearing her white hat and coming in like Crusader Rabbit. So we're getting back to you, Joanna. So let's talk now about how about check fraud, using checks. What did you find out about that?
2: We aren't able to break that out as a unique category when we're um, interviewing these victims on the phone. We we go through about a 100-question interview with them because we cover so many different topic areas. So when we ask them what types of identity theft they have experienced, both checks and debit cards go into a category called checking savings, checking right. accounts and saving accounts. Um, and so we didn't actually get
1: that. But they're either. similar, because even though a debit card is a debit card, it really acts like a check because the money immediately is removed from your account. So th- that makes sense to me that that was a good way to lump them together. Yeah. Yeah. So what did you find with that? Um, well, we found that
2: type of identity theft appears to perhaps, and I say this cautiously because we have a fairly wide margin of error around our numbers, but um, it appears to have grown somewhat since our 2003 survey. It accounted for 1.5% um, of, of the adult population, and um, back in 2003, I think it was around one percent of the population so it may be that even the thieves are now realizing that it's pretty easy to get cash which, after all, is what they're really looking for.
1: Yeah, they go Um, for the money.
2: (laughs) Yeah, they don't have to, you know, buy a plasma TV and then go sell it on the corner. They can just withdraw $1,500 from your account. Yeah, here's my statistics. Back in 2003, we found that the misuse of primarily, uh, you know, checking savings accounts, also phone accounts, I should say, because those tend to be somewhat significant portion of of this category it affected 0.7 percent of all adult americans that that one year in that one year period and i should say the folks who discovered it accounted for about 0.7 percent and it was double that in 2006 it went up to 1.5 percent you know with our margin of errors i can't tell you for sure that there was a uh, there, there was a doubling but i suspect there was a growth and other researchers who i've spoken to have also found trends like that
1: Right. When you get complaints, I don't know if you're getting these, but I get a lot of this from consumers who call us. And that is, now that checks can be created from all this software that you can buy at any Office, Office Max, Office Depot, anywhere, all one has to do is look at the routing number and the account number on your check, which is very easy to do. Anybody can find a check or they get a check at a retailer Very simple to do they copy that and then they create their own checks and then they go to town and the money is siphoned out of your account because the banks really don't look at the checks they just run the check through the reader and it reads what the account and routing number is that's exactly right banks don't have the good neural networks that credit
2: uh, credit card companies have they don't keep a good pattern of when you write checks, who you write checks to, what amounts are typical for you, Um, and no one's looking at the signature, as you said. They're just running them through. And yet they are under, uh, by law, they're obligated to pay on that check to whichever the institution is within three days, Whereas they may not find out that it's fraudulent for two weeks. So the consumer is at a real disadvantage there. But as you said, there is no great built-in security, and the account number and routing number make it completely open, in a sense, to anyone with really criminal intent. The other thing that, that you can do with, with someone's account number and a right. routing number is you can create demand drafts. where no one even has to sign the check. It's simply a piece of paper that would draw upon your account. And so it is quite surprising to most people how open to fraud that system is. And as you said, you will get your money back by law, but it may take a long time for the bank to unravel the whole thing. So you're going to need to have some other source of funds to live on during that period
1: and not only that you have people who they when while this is going on their checks may be bouncing all over the place so then they get on these lists that they can't even use their own checking account and i hear that a lot about people who say well gosh now that this has happened to me i can't even cash my own checks because my fraudster has done this and i have seen checks joanna where, let's say, you know, Joanna Crane is on the check and it's Bank of America. Well, the check actually, that's your account, but the check will say, you know, Susie Q, and it'll say maybe Wells Fargo. <laughs> and, and yet the Bank of America will still uh, release the funds. Do you know what I'm saying? It's just yes. crazy. Yes,
2: it all seems to come down to those numbers. And exactly. nothing else is really needs to line up with it. Um, which means that the identity thief doesn't really have to have a picture of, you know, a driver's license with your name on it, right? Because it can say Susie Q, right? right. And yeah, it's it's really it's it's alarming, and I think you you hit the nail on the head. A lot of us have checks that may be outstanding; they're going to come back and bounce if you move if you close that account to open a new one. Those are going to bounce. And a lot of people have automatic payments coming out of their checking account, too. Right, right. And so you need to, you know, you want to act quickly and close that account and open a new one, but you have to notify all of the companies where you have the automatic payments. If you have direct deposit of your paycheck, you have to notify your employer so there are several, several steps involved in closing an account and opening a new one. And the bank needs to be very cooperative with you to help you minimize the harm during that period.
1: And sometimes, and I just got a call this last week from, from a family, that um, w- they did close the account. They did everything that you just said. And then when they opened the new account, somehow the, the bad guys that were still writing the old checks, they took the money out of the new account. Oh my! Yeah, the bank took the money out of the new account, even though the old account was closed. <laughs> so oh no. I mean, oh yeah, I hear this all the time, you know. Or they 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 say we're not going to take the money out, and then they take it from the overdraft. Oh, it is um, oh, it gets just right. insane. It is it is probably the most dangerous. So the only thing I think, while we people are listening, I would just say do online banking <laughs> because online banking from your own bank at least number one you're going to be writing the checks not writing checks, but actually paying bills from your own bank and have them pay whatever bills you have as much as you can and don't even use checks. Use them as little as possible.
2: Right. I think you're exactly right.
1: And then if you're using online banking, at least if you use 12... You know, numbers and letters all mixed up and, and having good passwords and good firewalls and antivirus. <laughs> it's so hard for consumers nowadays, isn't it, Joanna? Well, yes, it is, uh, because, as you said, you have to be
2: vigilant about securing your privacy of of your of the information that's, that, that's on your computer uh, because of the malware, as you said, you know, the spying and, and it's… Um,
1: keylogging and all this stuff. Yep. You know, I mean, don't you think, you being a consumer advocate for so many years, it's really daunting for us as consumers? That's right. We've had, um, the, the economists
2: have looked at the rate uh, of, um, you know, new identity theft every year. And uh, my friend who has done this math for me said that most people who are alive right now will, you know, during their lifetime become victims of identity theft. It's just it's just the numbers unless we can really clamp down on it and bring it down to you know a much lower percentage um it's something we're all going to have to deal with at some point
1: you know and i think about the i the fair and accurate credit and transactions act that became you know that was signed Mm -hmm. back in what 2003 became effective Mm -hmm. 2004 Mm -hmm. and that whole idea of that big you know, piece of legislation, 60 pages, was to reduce identity theft. Mm-hmm. And what has happened is, if anything, it really hasn't reduced <laughs> much, has it? You know, it, it was a lot
2: stronger on victims' recovery right than it necessarily was on prevention. It gives consumers the tools to discover it very quickly because now we have one free credit report every year. And if we stagger those throughout the year, we're going to be able to review our credit reports every couple months. And it gives you much stronger recovery tools if you are a victim of a denny theft. But in terms of prevention, the new rulemaking that just came out, um, it's on the FTC's website, on red flags, puts a responsibility on companies to really watch and be attentive for signs of identity theft and then to take the appropriate action, which one would hope would be to uh, not open the account. Right, right. Um, But, you know, other things uh, like the the fraud alert, like the seven-year fraud alert where creditors must – uh, contact you probably prior, to at credit, yeah. Yeah, uh-huh. prior to issuing credit. yeah, issuing credit. it's it's a little early to see the impact of that yet, or even to have uh, enough information to know whether it's being very uh, widely applied by the financial institutions. Um, and of course, there's the credit freeze, which a lot of states are doing.
1: And and, and then now, yeah, and even now since November first, the the uh, credit bureaus are really allowing anyone in a state that doesn't have a statute, now Now you can still get a credit freeze.
2: Right, and that's great. That's a really good way of preventing new accounts from being opened in your name, but it doesn't do a thing about what we were just talking about, which right. is the, you know, your existing checking account or right. your debit card.
1: And, you know, I think that's another really important issue that people really forget, that not all identity theft will appear on your credit report. And and that is what's unfortunate in terms of if you know some of the things like background checks. If there was a place, one place, that we could look to, that would have maybe all of the different services, like governmental services, that mm-hmm. we'd be entitled to, and then we could say because people will say to me, well, how do I know somebody's not using my social security number to um, to get a job or become a citizen or to get a passport? or to get workers' comp, or to get disability payments, or to get insurance. You know, I mean, a lot of that, or, you know, or to commit crimes. You know, some of that stuff you can see on a background check, but we don't have a right to one free background check per year at exactly. this point. Exactly. That, that is
2: very challenging, because when you do discover it, you're going to really experience some challenges, we found that 70% of the identity theft victims whose experiences included this kind of non-financial account ID theft that you were just mentioning, um, experienced one of the problems that we listed for them, such as having to repeatedly uh, correct accounts, uh, being rejected for loans, having their utilities cut off having civil suits filed against them, criminal investigations that they had to endure, being harassed by debt collectors. Um, So for for consumers who don't have this sort of non-account ID theft, the rate was only 30%. So 70% versus 30%, the type of ID theft you just mentioned, is by far the most serious of all.
1: Right, right. It is. It is uh, terrible when they do that. And you know what I've been hearing a lot more of lately? This, and I don't know... Even half the time, what to tell these people. Cyber identity theft. I had a woman who just called me recently. Who found out that someone took over her business and actually created a website, stole her website, and then hired people to work for her, pretending to be that she owned that website? Goodness me! I know. How were they? How were they? How were they, they making just, well, money off of it? Because they used her profession, okay, to oh. hire other people to work for her uh, using her reputation, mm. and so other. And then this woman was not paying the people that she oh. hired. And so she had lawsuits, and so we're finding at least the kind of crazy calls that I'm getting is a lot to do with cyber identity theft, that people are just, you know, going, you can be so anonymous, someone doesn't know who you are. And in fact, the woman who did this to this lady that called me, the lady that called me is from California, the woman doing it to her is on the East Coast.
2: Well, it's it's amazing the way that people will... Find to use other people's identity, and the Internet makes it, uh, it gives us, gives thieves, uh, such people, a new avenue to use people's information. And as you said, it even gives them a new type of identity to use. We found an enormous jump in the number of victims who said that someone had misused their Internet payment accounts. So think about your PayPal accounts right. and your you know, there, I think Google has a checkout account. There's several new ones coming, you know, being offered these days. But it would appear that there are identity theft problems around those, too. And they must not be that hard to uh, take over by an identity thief because we saw a real jump in that area
1: huge, huge problems. So in terms of talking about how long it takes for victims to recover from identity theft, it Mm -hmm. really depends on the type of identity theft. So what did you find in the study?
2: Um, In the study, we found that the folks who have experienced either the opening of new accounts or those other types of fraud, the government benefit, the employment, those ones that you were talking about, 15% of, of those types of victims said it took them more than three months, but almost forty percent said that they haven't even resolved their problem so they couldn't give us an answer right. of how long it took to resolve it because they're still ongoing. Right. Um, by contrast, for people who only had an existing credit card misused, only eight percent said that it took more than three months to resolve and only five percent Had problems still ongoing, so those seem there seems to be some closure, and and again, often it's resolved in one day.
1: The bank. So, so what you're saying is that stuff that appears on credit reports really, even though it's a hassle and a challenge, there is a you know a light at the end of the tunnel. Whereas a lot of these others, it's it's open ended. I know I helped a guy. Who was a victim of criminal identity theft? In his, and his it started in 1991, and I helped him finalize it in 2006. Yeah, I mean we're talking about huge amount of time. Yeah, once
2: it's in the court records, it becomes extremely difficult to fully expunge, and it's probably been picked up by other types of background agencies, so you may be able to fix it at the courthouse, but can you fix it all the way down the road, all the different places it's now been, you know, pulled into a database?
1: Right, and how many data brokers have bought and sold it and shared it, right. and, and some, you know, I've read that once something is on the Internet, where it gets on the web, I mean, it never goes away. <laughs> yeah. There is always something that it's never going to go away. So I, I guess we have to have a whole new paradigm, you know, yes. for how we deal with all this.
2: Yes, it, 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 it seems as though we need to make it much easier to recover, much easier to recover. I really think that there needs to be something in place for the sort of criminal record ID theft that you talked about, something really universal where a victim is given, you know, uh, the benefit of the doubt with, you know, with if, if they can reasonably verify that this has happened, it, there just should be some blanket way to... Um,
1: Uh, to say yeah this is this isn't me (laughs) exactly it but it doesn't go that way because i think people in our in our in our vast information age where things happen so quickly that if somebody for example for a job they're not going to give you the benefit of the doubt they're going to they don't even want to bother with you they'll take somebody else right you know they're not going to say well okay so you're the victim of fraud sorry about that clean up clean up the mess and then come back. You know, they they just don't do it. They don't give them the benefit of the doubt. And they, it's and understandable. They I think by law,
2: they really should tell them if, there, if if something adverse in their credit report has contributed to a refusal of a job offer or, or, or a higher interest rate or any of several different types of adverse actions, um, the company should tell you that and should... Provide you with a copy of your credit report,
1: but or your background check, the same thing. Check. Yeah, they should definitely do that. But you know, I mean, it just doesn't always get done. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, so wh- when you when you did this study, um, what did what did you learn about how the crime impacts the victims?
2: We asked several questions that would probe the type of challenges that they were having in their daily life, uh, in addition to or, or beyond the the time spent and the dollars lost, which, you know, you and I had talked about a few minutes ago. Um, and we found that a surprisingly high number of victims, um, I think it's as many as 60% of victims who um, experienced sort of a new account and the other fraud type of identity theft. Mari, um, it impacts all victims to a great degree, and our survey was not able to include questions on the emotional or physical effects, but we did find out that as we listed problems, types of problems like being harassed by debt collectors, or being denied a loan, or having their utilities cut off, or being denied utilities, all of which would present real problems in their daily life, 37% of victims said that they had at least one of those problems. Um, And if you were a new account or other fraud victim, 68% had one or more of those problems. So they're even twice as likely as the checking or savings-type victims or the credit card victims, they're uh, more like four times as likely as credit card victims to experience uh, those types of life-changing problems. I mean, w- if you're denied a student loan or if you're denied a job, how do you ever get that back?
1: Right, right. So, I mean, Avi, it, ma- it makes sense that the, the worse the problem, the, the worse the emotional impact we're speaking with Joanna Crane, who is the uh, program director for the Identity Theft uh, Program at the Federal Trade Commission, and she's talking to us from Washington, D.C., and we're talking about the 2006 ID Theft Survey. So what else did you learn about um, where victims are going for help and recovering from the crime?
2: Well, again, we found that a surprisingly large number of victims Say that they don't contact anyone 38 percent of victims said that they just didn't contact anyone and we did get verbatims um, from victims who said that because we wanted to find out more about why they didn't contact anyone and in most cases they were victims of a very small existing credit card or Uh, You know, maybe someone forged one check in their name, and the dollar loss was at most $50, and they just felt it was easier to pay the money and just take that hit and get on with their lives than to try and um, resolve it with the institutions.
1: The other group of people who... That's kind of sad because what they're doing is they're just acquiescing to the fraud. It's very sad. Um, A lot of people said, you know, I was too
2: busy at the time. So other stresses in their lives may prompt
1: them to uh, fail to take action. Um, And I want to say a, a really good plug for the Federal Trade Commission right now, because the Federal Trade Commission, and Joanna, you have a lot to do with this, has a wonderful website with fantastic help and what to do and how to do it at www.ftc.gov slash ID theft. And you guys have done a terrific job. So a lot of people still don't know that who the Federal Trade Commission is and what you do for people. I mean, it's amazing to me how people say, really, what is it? The Federal Trade Commission, why would they help me, you know? You're right.
2: Only 4% of the victims that we spoke to had contacted the Federal Trade Commission, so they did not get the benefits of our website, which would sort of tell them the steps they need to take to recover. Um, 43% said that they contacted the company that was affected. Again, these are mostly people who have an existing relationship with a company where the thief has come in and misused their existing accounts. And so they're going to get taken care of by that company, and they may not need to contact anyone else.
1: Although uh, I fun. have to say a little caveat here in that I know that they don't always get taken care of by their own company, and that's what's really frustrating, because you would think if you had a really good relationship with the company that, especially, I'm I'm talking about the banks and yeah. the, and the checking accounts, usually I have to say, like, Whenever there's fraud, and I've had fraud on my accounts, on my American Express, they're wonderful. They take care of it in a heartbeat. Same thing with my Visa, Chase Visa. They've been good. So the credit card companies seem to be better than the banks themselves in terms of checking accounts. That's my experience and the experience that I've heard. I don't know about you.
2: You know, I really can't. Let's see. I really can't tell from the way the data is presented here whether there was a, a large difference between those two categories, but anecdotally, everything I've heard supports what, what you said, which is that um, existing credit card victims are not going to find the rapid response and, and the ease of recovery that a credit card victim would.
1: Right, right exactly that it's it's harder with the checking accounts than it is the credit cards how about how about police i mean i remember when it used to be so hard to get an i an id theft report which you need in order to be cleaning up the mess so what did you find in terms of how the police are doing in writing reports um, it looked like it was getting better, and, of course, more and more states have now passed laws that require
2: police to write reports for domestic of victims, but in 2003, 24% of the victims said they were unable to get a police report, and in 2005, that had dropped to 19%, so a drop of 5%, um, and uh, unfortunately, they're not always able to get a copy of that report because some state or local laws say that police reports, you know, are are not given. Um, But in that case, they should be able to bring an affidavit or something with them to the police department and get the police to put a signature on it, maybe a contact number, something like that, to show that they did file the report with the police, and the police will, uh, you know, find the information that the victim has provided credible and, and did write a report.
1: Well, you know, you and I have talked about this before, about the fact that the Fair and Accurate Credit Transaction Act mandates that a victim have an identity theft report from a state or local or federal agency in order to be able to get the fraud cleaned off their credit report. It, it almost says that. What it says is that if they have that
2: identity theft report, they get much more powerful, expedient uh, rights um, to clean their credit report. The burden of proof is shifted off of the consumer and onto the company that is reporting to the credit reporting agency that this debt is owed if you don't have an identity theft report, you can still dispute it, and then you'll be under the sort of pre the dispute mechanism, which means that it's your word against the company, right. and the company
1: actually has the final say. Right, so you really don't get the benefit of right. some of that, and and I think that's, that's the hard part, is because the victim w- goes to the police, does what they can to try and get it, and then they can't, and You know, I think that's a a huge issue that we've talked about before, is that they should be able to get an identity theft report, even if it's from the, the postal inspector, you know? Exactly, and the Federal Trade Commission had to write the rules for the identity theft report, and we
2: did, in our rulemaking, tell the credit reporting agencies that not all consumers are going to be able to get an identity theft report, and if they can you know, swear, uh, sort of, you know, sign an affidavit, provide their documentation, explain that they did try and get a police report and weren't able to, that that is going to have to, um, you know, suffice.
1: Yeah, and, and I'll tell you, the, the, the Postal Commission or the Postal Inspector has actually been not bad in some of those cases. And so if you're listening to this and you couldn't and you, li- you know, you happen to be in a state that you can't get an identity theft report from the police, then you might want to consider the postal inspector and remember you also got the you know the FBI the secret service they usually don't want to mess with it but worse comes to worse i think the postal inspector or the social security administration mm-hmm. inspector they they've been kind of helpful in some of these that's at least been my experience if worse comes to worse that's excellent and if the
2: consumer files their complaint with the federal trade commission they'll be able to print out what looks very much like an affidavit and it sets forth all of the accounts that were affected and any other information like a wrong name or wrong address that appears on the credit report and there's a place where they can sign under penalty of perjury and they can check a box that says i tried to get a police report and you know if if you do that and then you take it to your postal inspector um and get their
1: number stamp or something on
2: that Yeah. yeah i i think that that would certainly be persuasive um, and carry the day at any credit reporting agency.
1: Yeah, and that's important, again, at ftc.gov slash ID theft. You can get that affidavit, and uh, that's really important. And maybe you can bring that to the police and beg because sometimes the police are afraid to give a police report because it it may mean to them that they have to investigate. And if they don't have the resources and the time and the energy, that's why they're often afraid to even do it. If they give you a report, then that obligates them to investigate. So another thing to do is to even ask for an informational report. Right. <laughs> Anything. Give me any kind of report. Anything. Just sign <laughs> this right here. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Now, how about we've heard so much about all these security breaches? You know, millions mm-hmm. of pieces of data of sensitive stuff. So, you you had a special section on security uh, mm-hmm. breach notification. What what did that come out like? Well, um, we
2: again we asked this of because. Anyone can receive a security breach notification. You don't have to be a victim, obviously. Right. So all the four thousand nine hundred and whatever people that we spoke to, we asked them whether they had received a security breach notification. We actually asked everyone who um, if if they had had it since two thousand and one, and in retrospect, perhaps we should have just said in the past two years, right? Because the breach notice. Um, that began to appear more, much more frequently. Didn't really start to appear until the California law went into effect, right? And uh, and, we really that di- and
1: we really didn't hear about the big one until 2005 with with ChoicePoint. That was the first real big one that everybody right. started hearing about publicly, right? So
2: taking into consideration that we have two or three years here where probably there was no legal obligation to report and it wasn't making the news. Nine um, percent of the consumers of, of the American adult Americans that we spoke to said they had uh, received a breach notification you know, since 2001. If I had done it since 2004, it probably would have been a much bigger piece of the pie right.
1: Um,
2: but there were there were interesting numbers on whether well first of all, we asked whether a social security number had been part of the information that was breached and breach notifications, There's not a standard format, so they don't always tell you that, Right. but um, uh, 3% of the citizens who we spoke to said that not only had they received a breach notification, but it told them that their social, social security number was included in the breach. When we looked at whether the person had become a victim of identity theft after they said they received the breach notification, we did find a substantially higher number than if you were just looking, if, 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 I guess, than the average population. Um, so we weren't sure whether consumers totally understood the question. We didn't have a way to sort of check their understanding of breach notification, and that is a fairly new term. So we can't really say with assurance that it does lead to a higher percentage of identity theft victims but if the question was understood correctly yes then yes we would have said there's a definite finding in relationship between receiving a breach notification and becoming an identity theft victim
1: yeah and, and it would make sense that as, especially if their social security number was stolen I mean it seems to me why when we're having all these security breaches and we're having all these bad guys steal these databases what are they stealing it for? Because right. of money, right? <laughs> I mean, right, right. I mean, it's not like, you are when you're stealing a database versus maybe if you steal a hundred computers, then somebody might say, well, they want the computers to sell. But if you're stealing databases without computers, <laughs> you know, what are you doing it for? Duh, yeah. you know? Yeah. Right, exactly.
2: And the, the days of, of hacking simply to show that you can break into a system, I think, are, you know, long past. And now it's, it's the data, and that's why we all know that there are big black markets buying and selling this data.
1: Exactly. So, so if you compare overall the 2003 to the 2006 survey, mm-hmm. what would you say has really changed, or if, if it has changed?
2: Actually, what was most surprising to me was how consistent the overall rate of identity theft was. Because when you put the margin of error around both of those, it's, they overlap. Right. So it doesn't indicate an increase or a decrease, it's about where it was. Right. Um, now, I must say that other studies have shown higher numbers than ours. Uh, the Bureau of Justice Statistics looked at 2005 and found that 5.5% of households in America um, reported... Now, what, how, how
1: did that translate into millions? Did they... They... Um,
2: actually, they don't give that. I Because a household is actually like 1.89 people <laughs> wow. okay okay so, so if you do that and you do the math it's something like 14 million people somewhere between 12 and 14 so right
1: and that's kind of closer to the Gartner study which said between mid 2005 to mid 2006 they came up with a number of 15 million new right. victims
2: right and so I'm try- actually I, I think that Now that I think of it, I think Bureau of Justice Statistics was was like 10 or 11 million. So it sort of sat right in the middle between ours at 8.3% and and Bureau, excuse me, 8.3 million and Gartner's
1: at um, 15. 15. And then there was Javelin, which was what, 8.9, something Mm -hmm. like that. So so we're anywhere really between 8 and 15 million people a year, which any way you look at it, it's too much. It is too much. Um, the other changes from 2003, we,
2: we uh, handled our dollars differently because we got exact dollar amounts instead of asking victims to just indicate by ranges how much the, the thief got. Um, and we also made a change in how we handled the money associated with the joint account holder where the individual said they were a joint account holder in 2005, we ended up cutting that dollar loss in half so that we didn't, didn't double count it. Right, right. Um, so because of all those changes, the dollar loss was $15.6 billion if you're sort of working from averages, as opposed to $47.6 billion in 2003, which sounds like a huge drop, but because of the different methodologies, that accounts for, like, almost two-thirds of that difference. The median amount obtained by the identity thief wasn't wasn't clearly so different. Um, in 2003, it had been in a range of 500 to 999 and in 2006, it was $500. Um,
1: right, right. So, very hard to compare. But, um, you're, but you're similar, and Lloyd is telling me, believe it or not, that we are... At a time, it's unbelievable. Uh, uh. So, what I want to thank you so much, Joanna, because we have we really appreciate the, all that you're doing there, and I know that you you guys will now take this survey, and hopefully that will get Congress to start looking at more creative ideas about how we can maybe really put this uh, identity theft and in, in, in decrease it or, or eradicate it in the near future.
2: Absolutely. We need to keep moving forward. We can't stop now.
1: Well, thank God they've got you there. I'm telling you, (laughs) you're wonderful. Thank you so much, Joanna. Thank you so much, Mari. I really enjoyed this. Okay, and we're going to have people go to ftc.gov slash ID theft. Okay? Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks again. Bye-bye. The
0: opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of
2: KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.